Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pappas, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Alex Segre-Cohen, Assistant Professor of Science and Risk Communication in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon. Segre-Cohen also serves as core faculty in the Center for Science Communications Research. She earned her PhD in psychology at the University of Southern California and a BA in geography at Clark University. She conducts interdisciplinary research at the intersection of psychology, communication, critical reasoning, and decision-making about sustainability, the environment, and human health. Prior to joining the UO faculty in September 2022, she was the director of operations at the nonprofit Our Climate Voices. She also served as a science assistant at the National Science Foundation. Thanks, Alex, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. And, and welcome to the University of Oregon. Thank you. <laughs> so first, tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? Yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey. Um, and then, as you noted, I um, pursued a degree in geography at Clark University. And there I was really interested in environmental values and how humans relate to the environment. Um, I worked with folks like Dick Peet and Jody Emmel, who were really interested in this human-environment interaction. Um, and as I was doing some of my undergraduate research there, I realized that um, it was really hard to understand environmental values without understanding psychology. Um, and so I took a little break from academia um, and worked at the National Science Foundation, as you said, and then decided to go back and better understand the human-environment interaction and how people make choices in relation to the natural world. Um, and so that led me initially to the University of Michigan um, to start my PhD, and then my advisor moved at the start of the pandemic to USC. So I got to experience two different PhD programs, um, mm -hmm. one of which was really centered around these um, questions of human interaction with environment, and the second one at USC was really a deep dive into the psychological research. So I got to blend kind of that environmental specialization and the psychological specialization. Um, so it kind of felt like getting two PhDs in the time of one, which was fun, but some work. <laughs> <laughs> so, so given that somewhat unusual training, say, tell us a little bit about your dissertation. What, what, what was it about? What did yeah. you argue? Um, so I'm a decision scientist by training. Um, so I study how people make judgments and decisions based on um, their values and their um, surrounding environment and different stimuli. Um, and so I was really interested in how people make choices in um, in emergent challenging spaces or dealing with emergent risks. So originally um, my focus was on climate change, but um, as I was getting my PhD, um, it was 2020 and so the pandemic came up and um, I shifted from just um, talking about environmental challenges to just challenges that humans, um, both on individual and collective levels, face. Um, and so I looked at some new technologies and how people were more or less accepting of these new environmental technologies that could potentially help us um, better adapt to climate change. Um, and then also how we communicate about these new technologies and how that changes people's decisions around them. Um, and then the last chapter of my dissertation, I pivoted a little bit and looked at COVID and how um, individuals in the US were or weren't trusting scientists and then um, were or were not adhering to the CDC recommendations around protecting oneself and one's community from contracting COVID-19. So tell us about the findings of that chapter. What, what, what are some of the reasons they weren't trusting and, and not adapting, adopting the advice? Yeah, so I think a large one, um, which my colleague Lauren Lutsky um, is focusing on for her dissertation, was really about how polarizing the topic was. I mean, even at the earlier stages of the pandemic, um, 
different sides of government or um, different folks on TV and in media were really talking about COVID-19 in different ways. And I think that that, um, it was hard then for folks, especially people who were listening to outlets like Fox News to really trust um, that there was some certainty around the science. I think that also the way that scientists communicate can sometimes, this wasn't part of my research, but I think the way that scientists communicate findings um, isn't with 100% certainty, right? We always, we say these are theories, right? Um, so we all know that gravity is real, um, but it's Do not. we all know that though? One would hope oh. that <laughs> most of us know that gravity is real, right? But um, it's not a fact in the same way, right? Um, it's a theory. And so I think that the lack of certainty around communicating about science can um, allow others to frame science as uncertain and to um, flip the framing and conversation to be in their best interest and not necessarily in the best interest of science or scientists. So you've already started to answer the question, why is science communication important? Mm. But I, I, I wanted to ask a more specific question based on what you just said, which is, what have you found or what advice are you giving to scientists now? Because I know one of the things that scientists became much more aware of during the pandemic was this problem. Mm. Um, have you seen changes in the way scientists communicate or is the Center for Science Communication recommending changes mm. to scientists about how they communicate? I mean, that's interesting. So the Center for Science Communication, SCR, um, is really kind of the mission is about translating science into action. Um, and that's a core mission of mine through my research and through um, the different partnerships I hope to, to cultivate throughout my career. Um, I did find it very interesting during COVID uh, when so much of the communications that were happening um, shifted online, um, the emergence of scientific rhetoric and scientific conversations on platforms like TikTok, for instance. So you see all of these science communicators now becoming viral on these different platforms. And um, the Forbes 30 under 30 list was just revealed yesterday. And there are now some scientists who are communicating about dis and misinformation that have tens of thousands of followers on TikTok. And so I think there are these really interesting new avenues for scientists to not only humanize themselves to their audiences, but to communicate in ways that are maybe more effective to the certain populations they're trying to reach. Um, I'm currently starting to do some work with um, folks here at UO. Um, I'll be leading kind of the scientific science communication arm of um, a pretty large project. And um, we were having some conversations the other day about, oh, what if our team got a TikTok? And how would that then change the way that we were both talking about our science, but then the different types of individuals that we could reach through that different communication platform? Are you finding that scientists are reaching out to places like the Center for Science Communication for guidance on how to communicate more effectively? Yeah, I think there's some. There's a lot of interest in the scientific community um, about just how to convey their science um, better and to more people. Um, the Center for Science Communication Research doesn't do trainings on how to help scientists yeah. communicate their science. It's more about um, the research, the teaching, and the outreach um, about science communication and really building community for science communicators across campus. Um, so for instance, teaching classes through the science communication minor about how to communicate science, but not necessarily leading trainings for scientists. Um, but we have had a lot of requests, I think, throughout the university for those types of trainings. And um, since we're only a couple of core faculty right now, there's not really capacity, but who knows what will happen in three to five years. So you just mentioned that you are a core member of faculty in the Center for Scientific Communication. Um, 
What do you do there? What's your job? <laughs> yeah, um, that's a really good question. I mean, I'm on now, I think, month three or four of that job. So um, what that's looked like so far is helping plan lecture series and um, different events that we hold or co-sponsor um, with other kind of institutions on campus. So um, we'll be working with the Undergraduate Research Forum in the fall, and I'll be one of the judges for that. Um, we also have a small grants program where undergraduate, graduate, or faculty members can apply for up to $3,000 to help fund research related to science communication. Um, and so I help um, review and assess those grant applications. Um, also the core faculty at um, the SCR teach classes in science communication. So next term I'll be teaching the science of science communication um, for undergraduates. And that's a pretty small class, about 25 students. And we'll be going over the different models um, that research has found are helpful models for communicating science to audiences. And then we'll also be doing case studies where we'll be looking at science communication in the real world and assessing how close they're resembling those models, what they could be doing better, and then hopefully having students go out and create some of their own scientific communication messages. So you also have a minor in the SCR? Um, yes, it's a minor in the SOJC, um, the School for Journalism and Communications, but the Science Communication Research Center. Tell us of. a little bit about the minor. What does it entail? Yeah, so it's um, for undergraduates, and there are these really great options for students to kind of learn more about the theory behind science communication, but then have some really applied on the ground experiences too. So um, folks get production classes to communicate about science using a variety of different technologies. Um, they also have opportunities to study abroad for, I believe, the summer term, and some some folks, I think it's through um, the science story is the is the name of the course. I might be incorrect on that one, but I think so. Um, and so folks um, with a couple of different faculty at the SOJC, students get to go to Alaska and um, be more deeply embedded in um, a coastal community there and really learn how to not only navigate what it means to be engaged in community and tell stories, but also then deeply embed science and un, uh, representations of climate change to what's happening to the communities there. So. I think the minor is really about both connecting that theory and practice, which is what the core of SCR is, and doing that through a variety of different classes for students. So let's talk a little bit more about your research. You uh, uh, you described yourself uh, before we began the interview as a, as a, psycho a psychologist, yeah. right? So in some of your work, you examine people's capacity for what you and your co-authors call actively open-minded thinking. Mm -hmm. So. What is that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so that's a term coined by John Barron. Um, and actively open-minded thinking is one's proclivity to seek out information if they don't know the answers to questions or to things happening in the world. Um, and so that can look like doing research um, by like using the internet, but making sure to use a variety of sources and not just rely on one source every time. It can mean asking different people's opinions. Um, but another component of actively open-minded thinking is knowing when enough research is enough, right? So it's not this um, notion that you need to always be seeking out answers and that you never have enough information to make a decision, but it's seeking out enough information that once you feel that you're saturated in enough knowledge, you can then make an informed choice. How do you measure it? Um, so John Barron and a couple of other researchers have used different scales that are um, self-assessments. So if we do online surveys, like I did for um, one of the chapters of my dissertation, we ask people how they think of themselves in terms of actively open-minded questions. So um, some of those questions can look like, being wrong is a sign of weakness. And people who are actively open-minded thinkers wouldn't think that, right? So they would score low on that item because it's okay to be wrong and you just seek out more information until you understand. Um, 
there are other ways to kind of, um, because actively open-minded thinking is a component of critical reasoning or critical thinking, there are other ways that can that you can measure it by um, having people in a lab and see how many different things that they look into before they come to a decision. Um, there are different ways that schools can teach actively open-minded thinking. Um, if folks are doing research reports, for example, if students are, you can see how many sources they have, and that can be maybe one way of understanding how actively open-minded they are when they wanted to see how many things, see how many different options or different readings they could look into before just writing a paper, right? So I think that there are different ways of measuring it. For my research and for many people's research when it comes to um, doing these types of surveys, it's usually through scales. So you, you also mentioned that there are ways that it can be improved or it can be taught. Mm. So just judging from what you see on the web or what you watch on television, there's a deficit of actively open-minded thinking in our society now. I would say so, yeah. So <laughs> how, how do we address that? How do we redress it? How do we improve mm. the amount of that in our society? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, like so many other challenges, um, a structural problem that doesn't just have one single answer. I think that our current education system isn't necessarily built um, to cultivate open-minded thinking. It's built to cultivate um, finding a quick solution and to listen to the teacher or the professor when they say something and take that as fact. Um, the class I'm teaching right now, this term is all about cultivating curiosity um, and it's for master's students. And one of the things that we talk about is um, being curious as a core human feature. And um, it is so drilled out of us through our lifetime, especially um, when entering education systems and public education systems. And so how can we then as educators really embolden our students to be more curious, to be more open-minded when they're doing their work? Um, for instance, the classroom environment even, um, if you think about the desks in rows, the teachers standing at front, and in many schools, bells ringing, right, when it's time to shift, that's all built on the structure of factories, right, during the Industrial Revolution. And so it was training students to look front, listen to the person talking, and then move when they hear sounds, and that was kind of it. And so what would it look like to even make students switch where they're sitting every day, right? Or make people pay more attention to different senses that they're experiencing and not just sight or hearing. And just getting more curious about the world around them, I think, can really improve individual sense of open-mindedness. So um, you study these massive problems, <laughs> climate change, the pandemic. So what what advice do you give to people who just feel overwhelmed by those like how, what do you say to them and say okay it's overwhelming but you don't need to hide under your bed what do you say <laughs> i mean so first i think it's really understandable to be scared and to be fearful and to feel like you can't do anything and i think that that's um kind of a, a normal reaction to have about these topics um and um there are things that can be done. And um, what I think is really motivating is instead of thinking about how bad things are, um, I'm, I'm really interested in reframing about visioning for the future and what can be um, hopeful or what can be achieved as opposed to all the things that are going wrong, right? And so I think um, it's very valid to think that the world is crumbling when it comes to these topics. And it's not over yet, right? We don't need to take a nihilistic approach when it comes to the pandemic or when it comes to climate change. There are things happening at different scales right now that really can, um, I think, embolden us to see what a new world could look like in these arenas. And um, I think 
better developing the conversation to be um, in a framing of hope or in a framing about solution-oriented problem solving can be a really important way of kind of moving conversations forward. So um, it's, you've made very clear that your work is interdisciplinary. Before the interview, you said, uh, I'm a psychologist and I work in the School of Journalism and Communication. Yeah. And our director said, what? Um, <laughs> so your work is like profoundly interdisciplinary. Why is that an important thing? Why is it good for research to be interdisciplinary? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are so many different fields that have been doing um, similar things all along um, and not really speaking the same language all of the time, right? And so I think that there's some translation work that needs to be done um, between fields. And I really um, feel really honored to be part of that translation work in the fields of communications and psychology and decision science and cognitive science. Um, I think that there's, uh, these huge problems are really interdisciplinary. They're multi-factor, they're huge and large scale, and it takes people wanting to look at things in a large, complicated way in order to solve them. And so I think that we need those disciplinary actors, we always will, and I think that there's now space for interdisciplinary work too. So tell us about what your next research project is. What are you working on now? Oh my gosh, so many things. She's oh, <laughs> one of them. Yeah, um, so right now I'm working with a postdoc um, and we're um, planning on evaluating different environmental justice um, communication tools to see how effective they are. Um, something that I'm really passionate about um, that kind of came about through my work with Our Climate Voices is um, the power of storytelling to change minds and hopefully impact choices and decisions. Um, and a field that um, I find that really um, important in is environmental justice and how people, um, how disproportionate um, impacts of climate change are happening to communities that are most likely on the front line and have been minoritized um, through the US but also um, throughout the world. And so we're really interested in testing different types of communications around environmental justice and see what um, different uh, kind of stimuli or different tools can really motivate change. Um, another thing that I'm really excited about is, um, so that project and another project that I'm working on with some collaborators in Switzerland and Arizona State, um, is really uh, propelling research on behavior change forward. So not just talking about intention to act, um, or how would you feel about maybe doing this in the future, but actually measuring if people are changing their behavior and doing that. Um, in a more intentional way. And so I'm really trying to connect these spaces of environmental justice and psychology um, through platforms of communication to really try and make a difference. So in the first case, the first of the projects that you just described, um, what have you found about um, the way that, what works mm. to communicate about climate justice and climate change? What, yeah. What are some of the strategies that are effective? So I am three weeks into this okay. research project. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but I can tell you right now that um, just showing data will never change people's hearts and minds in the way that stories will, right? I think personalizing and humanizing these really big, um, diffuse, um, grandiose problems like climate change is really the way to, is really a strong strategy in imparting change. Um, we're interested in kind of seeing if we can combine numbers and stories to kind of use both of those strategies and the benefits of both of those strategies. But I'll let you know when we okay. what we figure out. <laughs> so um, you, you mentioned in passing that you were the director of operations at the nonprofit 
our climate voices. So what is that and what do they do? Yeah, um, so it's a group um, of folks, mostly um, youth-led folks, and um, it's really this grassroots organization. It came about, um, Al Brady is the founder and kind of visioning director. Um, and it originally started because as I was saying before, communicating about climate change from just talking about fear or just talking about numbers wasn't cutting it. And we were really interested in better understanding how people who were on the front lines of climate change, whose communities were really experiencing these acute injustices related to climate change, um, what they were doing and how they were feeling and how their stories could connect with others who were maybe not at the front lines of climate change, but who had power to make a difference. Um, and so that started by doing interviews and doing long form um, blog posts, um, and we pivoted in recent years to also doing things on video, to doing different podcasts. Um, there was some documentary work that was going on as well, and so I think the point of Our Climate Voices was to really um, connect and catalyze communities into um, developing their own climate stories to humanize climate change, but then also to connect across difference through the power of storytelling. Um, so it was a really wonderful organization um, to be a part of, and um, they're just doing really amazing work and managed to really build their um, social media following and get a lot of partnerships with different um, grassroots local organizations. And yeah, always a fan of OCV and their work. Can you tell me something, <laughs> as an example of the kind of impacts of the work that uh, our climate voices. Yeah, are. so these stories um, usually were an individual who was um, experiencing um, acute climate injustice or whose community was. Um, and so the stories would be um, talking about the problem, talking about um, like how the problem felt, um, what the community experienced, and then also what the community was doing about it. And so at the end of many of these stories, there were different options for um, kind of action measures that readers or consumers of these stories could take. Um, and so that could look like um, signing petitions to, to ban um, a like trash facility too close to a school. And so that if that was what the story is about, there could be petitions signed or um, money needed to be raised to get air filters in a community. And so like providing donation links. And so it was a way to I think more deeply embed people outside of those communities with the different solutions that those communities were seeking based on the injustices they faced. Okay, so we're, we're getting close to the end of our time. Yeah. Um, you've already talked a little bit about your teaching. You're a teacher as well as being a scholar um, and a psychologist. So um, tell us a little bit about your philosophy of teaching. What yeah. I mean, you talked about how the classroom itself could be changed to encourage curiosity. Mm -hmm. So what happens in your classroom? Yeah, so um, the class is called Curiosity for Strategists. Um, it's for Masters of Advertising and Brand Responsibility students. Um, and I am a really big advocate for um, students being in charge of their own learning, right? I think that I learn as much from them as they learn from me. And so I create kind of a structure and spend about 20 minutes like lecturing on the topic. And then the students spend the rest of the time doing activities and exercises. Um, I think that it's really helpful to learn about the theory behind why things are the way they are. And we can't just be learning about problems, we have to be like building solutions too. Um, so an example of this is we, um, one of the classes we learned about different ways of problem solving through an activity called the six thinking hats, which is six different ways of thinking about a problem. Um, and then they told me what the biggest problem they thought the, wor like, the world was facing and it was climate change. Um, and then in groups they solved climate change. 
And so they got a week to figure out solutions to climate change at whatever scale they thought was appropriate and worked well for their interests. And you know, I presented them with the framing and the framework that they that they needed to use to solve this problem. And then they went about and did it and presented it to the rest of the class afterwards. So tell me what like was the most surprising solution that was no, I just loved the different scales that folks uh -huh, worked at. Uh -huh. So there were some. There was one team that worked on solving um, the unsustainable shipping problems with some of the like classic shipping companies across the world, um, and then there were some that um, solved coral reef issues, and then there were some that like dealt with all of like the the lack of water across the U.S. And so they. Um, the solutions were really multi-scalar, which I thought was really interesting. And because this is a brand responsibility class, they also spent time connecting different ways that um, industry could help with these problems, mm. um, which is not something I think that is talked about too much, especially in climate justice spaces. And so a lot of them who were interested in climate justice then also had to really think about what can industry do to help this problem as well. Um, so it was just really fun. Do they find that industry can do? I mean, there are, I think there are plenty of people who are very cynical about industry. Yeah. They talk about greenwashing, for mm -hmm. example. Um, did the students feel that there are things that industry can do? Yeah, I think that um, they were definitely all pro-industry helping. I mean, mm -hmm. they believe in um, brand responsibility. So I think that there's some necessity for brands acting and or uh, companies acting in honest and transparent ways. And so they used either companies that already existed and propelled their mission forward through this activity, or they said, nothing exists in this space yet, and this is how a business could create that change. Um, so I think they're really uh, motivated to kind of uh, embolden the economy and business to really help with the solutions finding. I, I agree that there, greenwashing is definitely a reality. And I think that the students in my class are, are really interested in ha making sure that that doesn't happen and that mm -hmm. the companies are really orienting towards ch change and not just marketing ploys. So the next question I have is a complicated one and I don't know if you're gonna be able to really answer <laughs> it, but you, you know, obviously we live in a time and you talked about this at the beginning of the interview where um, there are outlets in the media and online that are hell-bent to deny that climate change is real, to encourage people not to get vaccinated, to encourage people not to wear masks, to pretend that the, that the pandemic doesn't exist, yeah. that the 500,000 people who have died, that never happened. What, what can be done about that problem? I mean, uh, I, you know, obviously Elon Musk is letting all of those people back onto Twitter. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, you know, from my perspective, I'm a humanist, uh, you know, I'm an English prof, and I just find this overwhelming, this problem, and I can't imagine what we can do about it, but it seems to me that it's a problem that has to be dealt with somehow. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a problem that needs to be dealt with. Um, I think, at least in my mind, I think the power of story is really important here. And so um, I don't know if somebody who's really anti-vax or really against dealing with climate change is gonna listen to me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I don't think that I am a trusted other yeah. in the same way yeah. as somebody who um, didn't get vaccinated, got COVID, got really sick, and has now like changed their mind about something. And that's something that I think is really interesting and I've actually seen on social media is these people that have reformed and changed their opinions and they were once really adamant against something and now they're, they've changed their mind and they're telling their story. now. It's showing up on my, like through my algorithm, right? So yeah. I'm not the intended audience for that. And that's a conversation I think then for the social media folks of how can you then have those stories actually be conveyed to the people who 
would benefit more from them than just maintaining the echo chamber that I find myself in and that mm -hmm. we probably all find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. But I really think it's conversations with trusted others that could help change minds. So, um, for instance, having white folks talk to other white folks about racism, right? Or having Christians talk to other Christians about anti-Semitism or what have you. So having people that are in you, part of your in-group, at least in some way that you can ideologically understand, um, have those hard conversations so that there isn't that immediate shut off, right? There isn't that, like, you just don't get it. You just don't get my perspective. You never will. Like, you don't know what I've been through, right? And there's less of that when that tension doesn't exist, right? So what can we do? How can we promote stories from trusted others to then have those types of conversations with folks? And I don't have the answer for you yet, but um, hopefully that's something we can talk about in a couple of years if I've done some research on it. <laughs> okay. Well, Alex, th that's a good place for us to end. Thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Welcome to the University of Oregon and good luck with this fascinating work. Thanks so much. It was great being here. <laughs> I've been speaking with Alex Segre-Cohen, an assistant professor of science and risk communication in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>